Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Denver ska band Five Iron Frenzy shocked more than a couple of people when, in 2011, they raised $207,980 via Kickstarter to fund the recording of their first album since 2003. This, at the time, set a new record for Kickstarter. New York Times wrote about it. The idea that not only a ska band, but a Christian ska band could raise that kind of money blew a lot of people's minds. Our guest today is Leonor Ortega Till, saxophonist of the group since its formation in 1995. Five Iron Frenzy are considered the quintessential Christian ska band, a subgenre a lot of people snicker at. But when it comes to Five Iron Frenzy, there's so much more to their story than just being a Christian ska band. I really wanted to talk to Leonor after after we went and saw the uh, Pick It Up Ska in the 90s movie. Oh yeah. One, because she just came off as as so personable in that movie, and two, I was uh, stoked to hear about her role as uh, somebody who who helped work on the film as being their like in person, uh, their connection to all these other ska bands. You know, during the '90s, Fiverr and Frenzy were very much pigeonholed as a Christian ska band, but they also kept kind of one foot in 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 both worlds, and since the ska fad had kind of went away. They continued to have a pretty sizable career and um, built an audience. And, you know, they put out a new album that's really good. Yeah. I always thought it was almost to their detriment that they were held up as a Christian ska band, because if you just listed them as just a ska band or a ska punk band, nobody would know the difference. They've um, broken the mold within the Christian scene too, which is interesting. And they've really taken a stand for progressive values and issues that maybe isn't in line with what we think of as American Christian conservatism. And uh, even to the point where their most recent album is their most political or vocal in in terms of what the conservative movement stands for currently. Yeah. I, I feel like um, radical Christianity. I feel like that's, that's what the angle that they're go- going for where it's, yeah, it's uh, not in line with kind of what you would expect of, of regular Christianity. I feel like they're really uh, talking the talk and walking the walk. Before we get into five iron frenzy, I'd love to talk a little bit about the movie, pick it up. Yeah. Uh, and your, and your role in that movie. Uh, I didn't know until we had chatted recently that you had a producer role and that you were involved in the movie in in ways other than just being interviewed. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it's funny because until it was done and until I was watching the credits, I didn't know I was a producer either. And that's just (laughs) because seriously, my background in film, I don't have one. And so 
at the time when Taylor was working, he's the director of the film, pick it up. When he was working on it, he said, do you want to be a part of this project? And first I said, yes, I'd love to be interviewed. But then when it came to, do you want to go to back to the beach and stay at a really cool Airbnb and convince people that you know personally that you played with back in the day to come be a part of this and get interviewed? Would you want to do that? And I'm like, absolutely. So it was ideal. I just, you know, call up the guys in Lesson J, call up um, the guys in Mustard Plug, Big D, just different people and say, hey, it's Jeff. You know me as Jeff the Girl from back in the day, Five Iron Frenzy. I'm going to be at Back to the Beach. And do you want to just get in a van with me and go to a weird house, have some beers and talk about ska? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, basically my job was kind of to legitimize the concept of this movie, which was majorly legitimate on its own. But, you know, for whatever reason... It's, it helps when you have somebody that you know to get you excited and talk about the memories and just loosen you up for the idea of this interview for this amazing movie. Taylor did a really good job and you know everybody involved with the movie did a good job. But yeah, I, I didn't know who he was before the movie. I'm sure a lot of people didn't know who he was when he was making the movie. Mm-hmm. So, but everybody in the Scott scene that he filmed knew, at least knew you personally or knew who you were because of the band. Um, I didn't know all the bands. But I knew a handful of them, or at least I could, you know, have some kind of story to tell about someone that they knew, that they knew, that they knew. And then the hard part at the very end was trying to get the bands that we really wanted that nobody personally knew. Like for the Boston's, we we're like, who knows Mighty Mighty Boston's? Nobody personally, it's harder if you don't have a personal connection because you can Facebook them or get a hold of their management all day. But that doesn't, you know, there's probably tons of people saying be in my documentary. So to really legitimize this project it wasn't until people in Less Than Jake and people in other toasters and bigger bands were saying, we're doing this, that it legitimized it on social media so that other bands were answering our calls and getting into the movie. How many interviews did you were you there for? Probably like eight. I don't really know. A lot of them. Because Matt from the Supertones was here, and then I got interviewed, and there was probably at least five or six at Back to the Beach. But you, the interview that you did as an interviewee, that happened pretty early in the process? I can't remember if that happened before or after I watched people back to the beach. I think it happened after. Oh, I see. Yeah, I can't. I honestly don't remember, but it's kind of a whirlwind, but it was super fun project. And I think everybody has a totally different point of view, because when you talk about ska, you got East Coast and you got West Coast and you got women in ska and you got, you know, Asian ska and Mexican ska and all these different things going on that there's you don't get bored. So we had to edit it down from like four hours to something people could really digest, right? And I think that was what was the the trick was digesting it because there's so much more you want to say, but you have to make it manageable. <laughs> yeah, I I had a I had a couple conversations with Taylor, just casual conversations, and I think we both related to it's kind of that point of view trying to create content about ska. It's like you can't make a single project about an entire genre because it's impossible to cover everything in a way where you're it's compelling and and doesn't get repetitive yeah taylor said that too he said a lot of people said the same thing and it was just finding the take that was the most animated or more most interesting or most heartfelt or whatever but he said a lot of people had the same repeat thoughts and i thought you know that would be interesting actually to see some of those spliced together same same idea but by different people that'd be cool yeah adam and i saw pick it up together um in I want to say, would you know? Do you remember when it was? It was at a film festival in San Francisco. You saw it at a theater. Yeah, we saw it. Yeah, we saw it before it was officially released on DVD. When he when he was still taking it to film film festivals. 
yeah, I really, I really enjoyed seeing it that way. Um, it was, it was nice to be able to, you know, really focus and and take the whole thing in. I mean, it wasn't until I think the credits rolled that I realized you had anything to do with it. Um, I think I added you on Facebook like shortly thereafter because you, <laughs> you were like so personable and I was like, it's another ska person. I'll just, um, where does the, the Jeff, the girl name come from? Yeah, that's unfortunate, right? (laughs) I'd like to say it happened because nobody can pronounce my real name, which is Leonore, but I always get like, Lenore, sign my CD, Lenore. Uh, When I was 12, I was a total tomboy. So like Vision Streetwear, extra large t-shirts, backward baseball caps, Doc Martens, you know, uh, army fatigues, just a total kind of like Joe from the Facts of Life or Punky Brewster kind of kid. And I was in a play at church camp where I played a boy. And so the joke was the character's name was Jeff in the play. And so everyone was saying, call her Jeff because it suits her. And I was like, yeah, call me Jeff. And then it became Jeff the girl. And that really was like my nickname for, yeah, from age 12 till I think around 20, right before I got engaged, I think like 24, 25, I was like, maybe we should change it. <laughs> when, when I tell people that I wrote a book about ska, one of the main things that people have told me or asked me is, oh, do you have a chapter about Christian ska? Oh, yeah. I know why they ask you that, dude. It's our fault. <laughs> <laughs> why do you think people are so fascinated with Christian ska? Because we inspired an army of mediocre musicians uh, and we made a place, an acceptable, beautiful, fun place for rock and roll and punk kids to fit in that otherwise didn't fit in in their youth groups. And so for those kids, those, you know, the kids that are at the festival and they're, you know, at a Christian festival, we're getting played on the quote unquote fringe stage. Those kids didn't have a place. They felt like they didn't belong in their churches. They weren't, you know, wearing the polos and they weren't the perfect little kids, but maybe in their heart, they were like, kind of like me. I mean, in my heart, I'm no different than you know, anybody else at a church, I just physically look different and maybe think different and think about Jesus's message a little bit different. And so for some of these bands coming out, it was mind blowing to say, wow, you can be Christian and be punk or be ska or be moshing or have long hair or nose rings. That was new. And so I think it gave a whole generation a place and a boost to be who they are. I, I could see that. Yeah. I mean, I know there was a, like you said, there was a Christian ska movement, but I always think of you guys when anyone says Christian ska, because I don't know if you were technically the first, but you were definitely the the best group and you were sort of the most prominent group of that. We weren't necessarily the first. I remember when we were practicing, uh, someone played a tape for me of the OC Supertones and uh, they were like, we got to get signed before then. And they did get <laughs> signed before us, but we made a better decision. And they got massive in the Christian market. So they went one way, which was like massive arenas and Christian festivals and whatnot. And then we went the other route, which was, um, you know, warp Tour, some, you know, Ska Against Racism, but then also sometimes Christian festivals and, you know, podunk churches in Alaska or in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that decision because I always thought that was an interesting thing. I grew up in the church as well. I'm I'm not a Christian anymore, but... So I'm very familiar with the Christian music world, mm-hmm. and I'm also very familiar with how rare it is for a Christian band to leave the Christian world or even to have their foot in both worlds. It is like, it is a well-oiled machine 
like there is a there is you can you if you're a band in that scene you can there's an audience mm -hmm. so there's no reason to leave that scene i think a lot of people feel like well we were one of the first bands i ever knew that had a mission statement and <laughs> imagine all these punks and and we're about like i was 18 when i joined the band one of the first things we said was we need a mission statement because we're going to do the real thing we're going to be legit so in it it had we and this is serious we were very serious and we ranged from like 18 to 24. We have to be excellent musically, which meant right off the bat, the band paid for some of my music lessons. <laughs> um, <laughs> we're there to serve the promoters, not be served. So that means when you play, you go clean up water bottles and whatever. We had rules like no rated R movies or drinking or smoking. <laughs> so I had to stop smoking like on our first tour, Cold Turkey. We had this rule that we said, we are going to play 50% Christian shows and 50% secular shows. Right off the bat in 1995, we decided that because we thought, okay, if we're going to be a quote-unquote missional, if we want to share the love of God and the acceptance of God, we got to go where he would have gone. But then also, we don't want to leave the Christians with crap music. They deserve good music. And especially, like I said, all those kids, they're just getting spoon-fed you know, the same redundant music. So we thought it wasn't fair for all those kids that were sheltered to not have good shows. So that was actually a very intentional decision on our part. I see. It's kind of weird. <laughs> it's kind of weird when you talk no, about it. That's awesome. Yeah, it is awesome, but we've been made fun of for it, but it is, it was awesome. And then another thing that very much connected us with Mike Park when we met him was our tours had a benevolence attached to it. So five bucks in a blanket, which would go to the shelter. Or Spam Jam is where you brought food. Or Pants Across America, um, Sock Puppet Tour, where you bring clean socks for homeless people. And then uh, Kenya Spare a Dollar. And we raised like over $60,000 for Girls Orphanage in Kenya. So you guys were doing this on your own. And Mike Park became aware of it and was like, I'm, I'm very, I'm, I'm very, I very much support what they're doing because he was doing that kind of stuff too. Yeah, he was already doing that kind of stuff. And so he's very similar to us where Scott Against Racism was a little different. Because we weren't raising money, but we were raising awareness. As a Christian band, like, again, like I used to go, when I was younger, I, I had seen Christian shows. And usually it's like the bands were there to minister, but really overtly minister. I think back to the band, my favorite Christian band of all time would be Danielson. And they didn't play to Christian audiences, you know, for the most part. And they saw themselves as being, um, I, th I think, more as like leading an example, I guess, for people to say, like, this is, we're not preaching to you, but we're showing you an example of what, you know, what we believe or what, you know, Christ or whatever. Did you guys feel a similar, when you guys would play non-Christian shows, was that similar sort of mission to, as, to lead as an example? Or what, what was your point of view there? I think there were times where it felt like that and there were times where it didn't. So you very much had this vibe of if you wanted to say something, say it. But if you don't, don't. And I'm glad we did that. It wasn't always something we were going to say. Sometimes we went out on crazy limbs. I remember one time, and this is a weird story, but hey, why not? We were on Scott Against Racism. And it's late at night, like two in the morning. And we go to a Denny's with the guys in MU330 and we started talking religion when, I think it was Dan P. And he's like, well, I don't think we're going to accept Christ today, but let's just hang out. And we're like, okay, cool. Like, just, <laughs> someone was like, basically like just bringing it to him. And all of the rest of us were like looking down into our coffee, like, shut up. This is awkward. This is not the day of their salvation. 
<laughs> I think though, honestly, Aaron, one of the weirdest things for me, to be frank, and one of the hardest things for me being, you know, quote unquote Christian or not, like was being a woman in the scene and hanging out with guys and bands that weren't Christians that didn't know how to be friends with women, especially when you're talking about rock star guys. And they definitely don't know how to just be friends with a woman, especially someone they're seeing every single night. I especially, I mentioned too in the 90s where the culture of music wasn't, was definitely sexist. Oh yeah. So that was always fun to be like, hi, I'm Jeff the Girl. I'm in Five Iron Frenzy. And they'd be like, not sure what to do with me. And I'd just be like, yeah, friend zone forever. Nice to meet you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can kind of remember that. Link, Link 80 used to tour with um, the Siren Six and their trombone player Mara would walk in a room and, and all the dudes would just be like deers in a headlight. Nobody you know, knew how to act. And she was this very, like, just normal person who was like, hey. Uh... And there's usually not a lot of other women for the women to hang out with. So it feels like, why are you hanging out with all the dudes? And it's like, what other option do I have? <laughs> yeah, definitely. How did the, did, did Mike approach you guys about playing Scott Against Racism? I'm curious how that came together. I don't know the logistics of that. I probably, I was one of those people, you know, it's a saxophone player and just kind of went along for the ride, I feel, for several years. There were times and I'd be following the rest of the crew in an airport, not knowing where we're going. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I was not aware, put it that way. My vote was probably, yes, let's do it. <laughs> when the band was starting and in the early days of the band, did you have a, an unusual church experience already before when you guys were starting in the sense that you did feel like outcasts? Did your place in Christian music, was that an evolving thing? It was an evolving thing. So for me, I didn't grow up really in the church. Like I didn't know there was Christian music, put it that way. I was really into Jesus on my own. So I would change the words in bad religion songs. I'll believe in God when two and three or five or like the freeze. I was changing lyrics to popular no effect songs and songs to be glorifying to God because I that was my heart. But I didn't know I knew nothing about Christian music. So I was shocked when I joined the band. <laughs> they had to educate me. So we had this band house, this crusty old band house. And I didn't live there. The guys lived there. But they had a legit little Bible study going and they'd had homeless people coming and the reason I loved Fiverr and the reason I joined it in the first place was these are the first men or even people I had met that looked at me as a person and didn't care who the cool kids were, who the rich kids were, or make fun of people or belittle people. Um, I think jerk was the worst word I ever heard out of their mouths. And for all these guys, it was like sober, clean, fun, which honestly really does fall in line with a lot of ska. But I wasn't used to that world at all, like zero, and especially being an 18-year-old. And so this band house and this Bible study, you know, we'd run down to the corner store and get some Twinkies and grape soda. And that became the body and blood of Christ in absolute sacredness. Like we were making it real for who we were, but we weren't legit in the church's eyes at all. You know, we'd go to church and people would be told, put your hair back or take your piercings out or whatever. So we found this gray haired church called Corona Presbyterian and we could hide in the balcony with our donuts and our, you know, chocolate milk and just kind of disappear up there. Yeah, that's that's so interesting to hear because, I mean, Aaron and I both grew up in pretty religious households. I grew up in the Mormon church mm. and uh, I'm still straight edge. And I was always a really good kid, um, but I looked I looked super punk rock. And so I would always get kind of looked down uh, the noses of the, you know, the elders in the church. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, it eventually completely soured me on the, on the idea of going to church. Um, mm. You know, even though I was, I was really active for a really long time. The thing I was thinking about with, I mean, so 
I mean, Aaron and I both went to like youth group type mm-hmm. activities. Was that ever something that you did? I was a bad kid. I'd get dropped off at youth group, but I'd never go in there. <laughs> I was the kid that was dropped off at the lock-in, and I'd be out all night. I was so bad. I mean, I joined Five Iron, and I had a lot to learn. Like, I was the rough-around-the-edges chick. And so I don't think the band really knows that. It's kind of like don't ask, don't tell, but she has a past kind of kid. <laughs> right. That's so interesting to hear. And similarly, like, right, I'll be totally honest. We had an old van. And I'm sitting in the back, and you know the vans, how they like have those windows that you pop and it opens? Yeah. And we're getting ready to go to a show, and I light up a Newport, and they <laughs> all turn around, all the guys. And keep this in mind, too. I'm, I'm Mexican-American. Both of my parents are Mexican-American, and my grandparents are from Mexico. So all these white guys turn around, <laughs> and they're looking at me, and they go, we don't smoke. And I'm like, we as in <laughs> Five Iron, or we as in the band? Are we as in Christians? And they're like... <laughs> They're just looking at me like dumbfounded. They're like, just, we don't. And I was like, okay, then I stop. Like, what? <laughs> so were you, were you the most rebellious person in the band then? Like, no, I no? I don't even, I think Andy was probably pretty rebellious. I think Micah was pretty rebellious. I think, I think a lot of us kind of came from rough around the edges and then had an experience that made us, you know, rise up to this new us at the same time. And that's what was fascinating was, you know, and I don't mean to, I don't mean to say that this is a bad thing. We were all at that age. You're so dogmatic when you're young. It doesn't matter if it's Christianity or making zines or being vegan or being straight edge, whatever. When you're in your twenties, you are the most, I feel like you're the most dogmatic and outspoken about whatever it is. Right. Oh, 100%. So for us, it was Christianity. Yeah. And I don't think like when I look back, I'm not embarrassed. I see a lot of people now and they're like, oh, how like a video just was released about MXPX and all these fans were talking about a um, having a fight about Marilyn Manson and pray for him and all like it was and everyone's like, oh, it's so embarrassing. And I'm like, no, it's not. It's not embarrassing because that's who we were then. And we were trying to do the best we could with what we believe. When you're in that age, give yourself some grace and some credit. When you're 20, you're not going to be who you are when you're 40. And so I'm not embarrassed to who I was. I had some dogmatic tendencies and I, yeah, there's things I did and said that I don't agree with now, but honestly, we were doing the best we knew. Did you guys end up sticking to the 50-50 rule or did you end up playing to non-Christian more than, than the Christian market? We tried to do this thing called the Robin Hood theory that I think you will appreciate. And it's one of those things that you don't really talk about, but Christian festivals would pay a lot of money. So we would play them knowing, you know, that's silly amount of money. And then you save that money and you go and you play like a week in like dive bars and try not to let youth groupers know that you're opening up in a warehouse with Wesley Willis, you know? Um, Incidentally, that one did get out to youth groups and it was almost like a big train wreck. Wait, why would it be a big deal to play with Wesley? No, we just didn't want the youth groupers to come. <laughs> oh, would they be offended? Uh, oh, you yeah. don't know the lyrics? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, whatever. <laughs> yeah, it's just a different vibe. It's it's the same thing. It's kind of like saying there is something to be said for playing legitimately a good, good, good show at a bar. And there's something yeah. to be said for playing a Christian college. They're not the same vibe. They're not the same world. And it wasn't, we never felt the need to mix those oil and water groups if they're going to be uncomfortable. Oh, okay. I can see that. Yeah. It's kind of hard to explain. It never was meant to be that, but 
I don't think we always just went to play secular shows, but I will be honest and say now that we got back together, because we broke up for nine years, now that we got back together, two of the guys aren't Christian in our band anymore. So out of eight, two of them aren't. Um, the rest of us are. And we won't play churches anymore. And the idea is partly because of that, but also mostly because churches don't have sound systems. And we have this massive, from a ska point of view, you might have tracks. We have an inner monitor system that we travel with. Um, we're high tech. You know, we're amazing now. We're rock stars. And so <laughs> we have all this stuff and we come in and we set up at three and we're using, you know, we can set the monitors to our phones and get exactly what we want of everybody's mix. We're not dealing with like church monitors anymore. So yeah, we've kind of gone to the next level as far as if we're going to be a live band, let's be a live band and give, give the fans a legit, awesome, amazing sound experience. Yeah, I, I can see. And I think you guys, because too, you're, you're, you're a draw, you're an act that people seek out. So you can just have a show at this point at a venue and whoever wants to come from whatever market will come. And they want to have a beer. <laughs> sure. Yeah. They want to have a beer. They want to get a babysitter or it's all ages and they want to get a babysitter or, or not get a babysitter and bring their kids. What we're seeing a lot now, especially with MXPX shows is people bring their kids and people bring their parents. It's like three generations rocking out. It's really cool. Is it a big deal at all that a couple of the members are not believers anymore? No, it is way more of a big deal to anybody who asks interviews. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but like it never hardly comes up with us. It's like they're brothers of mine and I'm their sister. And it's like you have people in your family that are all different. It's like that. So um, no, not at all. Do you not necessarily overtly think of Five Iron Frenzy like saying we're a Christian band? It's more like we're Five Iron Frenzy. I don't think, unfortunately, because of the place we've had in history that we can divorce ourselves. It'd be like in 10 years saying, yeah, Mephiscopheles is just a band. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't think you can do that. You can't rewrite everything that we did and stood for. So even though maybe to the detriment of, you know, what the other guys think or whatever, they're just, we're all kind of like shrug and like, you'll never get rid of that. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And in some ways, it's kind of fun because our new album, Until This Shakes Apart, I mean, if anything, it gives us more clout and more, I don't want to say gasp, but more authority to speak to the Christian market saying, as one of you, as us, we can look at these issues of immigration, of gun rights, of, you know, oil, of indigenous rights, all these different things and say, what are we doing? What do we believe? What do we stand for? And if you're not a Christian and just pointing fingers, like maybe propaganda, which I love, it's going to be a way different message than if you're us saying it. It's different for no effects to say it than us. In Defense of Ska will return in a moment. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024, these are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Yeah, that's funny. So just uh, an, an interesting overlap of, of me and you guys is that the Westworld, your local weekly. Oh yeah, Westward. Mm -hmm. Westward, sorry, Westward. They wrote an article about you and they wrote an article about me for the same issue. 
<laughs> they made you help write an article about us. <laughs> they, they they didn't pay you for that, dude. That's uncool. <laughs> yeah, they interviewed. They're like, oh, can we ask you some questions about Five Iron Frenzy? And I, of course, I I answered them, but it was funny in my head. I'm like, I'm not a Five Iron Frenzy expert. It's, I'm just a guy who wrote a Scott book. <laughs> you impressed me, dude. <laughs> <laughs> so, but <laughs> but you know, in 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 the stuff that it was in that article and that I talked about, I one of the things I was saying was about your guys's stances on progressive issues in 2020 mm-hmm. and especially at a time when Christian conservatism is so like almost singular in in its political stances now it's just been a growing thing and you guys have, have I think you guys have been there but you've gone progressively more so there to say you know take a stand for progressive issues as Christians um to and I, I think I had a quote in there too where I was talking about Reese was was it Reese or the band whatever was talking was taking a stance for uh, Black Lives Matter and was getting all kinds of crap from fans about that and you know just kind of how weird that is so weird <laughs> what has been that process for you guys uh, obviously when you came back together in 2011 I think probably you guys have had grown and a lot had changed in the world but was it were you guys always sort of feeling a little bit at odds with the with the mainstream Christian messages and and their alliance to politics or did that make a huge leap forward I don't think it was like that or maybe I was maybe I was blind I don't know I never knew this because again from my personal background growing up Hispanic you had JFK and you had Cesar Chavez and and the Catholic Church and so Christianity and the Jesuit culture was Democrat. It was social justice. And I remember, again, kind of like the smoking, joining Five Iron and being like, yeah, my parents are, you know, they're veterans and they're Democrats. And everyone look at me and be like, what? And I'd be like, you can be a Republican and Christian? They're like, you can be a Democrat and Christian? <laughs> I had no idea. You know, I, again, it's in our band, eight people, just starting out young, you had Church of Christ. You had two Calvinists. You had Assemblies of God. You had a Presbyterian. You had, yeah, two Holy Roller Pentecostals, one of which is me. And then politically, you had some Republicans, you had some socialists, you had some anarchists, and you had some Democrats and Republicans in there. So I think that there's never an easy, I mean, any band, like, it's interesting because you can ask these questions, but it's not the kind of question that normally would get asked to Joe Schmo band, right? Like it is just so different because again, when you put this Christian thing, you go, okay, Christians, so they must fit into this and believe this, but I don't think it's that easy at all. Definitely not. Um, So it kind of creeps up on you. The cult of Christianity creeps up on you. And then you open your eyes and go, what? That is not legit. Like that's not even, I don't know what's happening um, with, with the message of Christianity. It is veered so much. And that's, exactly one of the concepts that is talked about in this main album this new album do you feel like there was a moment where you really noticed or you you personally or as a band noticed how much it had veered off course i think the first phrase was tea party when you started hearing the concept of the tea party um sarah palin kind of times started noticing uh churches getting involved in politics and that's not good and the cool thing was the churches I've always gone to and have been a part of I never knew if the pastor was a democrat or a republican because that's not part of the pulpit talk and shouldn't be yeah I mean the church I grew up in was actually pretty 
extreme in how Christian they were, but I politics weren't talked about at that time, but I bet you anything those same people are now very political. Just it just would be my guess. But at the time it wasn't talked about when I was a teenager. Yeah, it's really fun to raise kids in this time, tell you what. <laughs> I have a fourteen year old well, Adam, you have kids. I have a fourteen year old and a thirteen year old and you know, trying to remind them that I mean, they understand it. They understand everything. Like they understand that your allegiance does not go to politics. I mean, there's no way to say, like when you read an article on Facebook and it says, capitalism is the Christian way. It's like capitalism has been around for all this years, 2000 years and all around the world. How can that be the way? (laughs) It doesn't even make sense. (laughs) Yeah. It's actually more laughable, but it is very sad too, but it's very laughable. So the other day, um, I saw Jonas from from Five Iron posted a, a video of his of his daughter playing playing drums, and uh, she's super into metal, so she was playing double bass the whole way through, and and so I I hit him up and I was like, oh, you know, I hit her up to play any ska. He's like, I'm sure she could play ska, but she she's all about metal. <laughs> what what sort of music are your kids getting into with with you as their mom? Oh my gosh, uh, AJR is a big. They love AJR. My kids are kind of nerds. So yeah, Johnny Cash and ABBA. <laughs> but if we want to really get into music, my son, for some reason, and he's 14, and maybe it's because he's a bass player, is really into like overtly sexy 70s music. <laughs> <laughs> and I try not to make a face like a lot of Earth, Wind and & Fire and Tower Power, and it's good stuff. But the ones he seems to like are like the ones that are like about you and me babe moments. And I'm just like blushing in the back of the car. Like you have no concept of what they're really saying in these lyrics. (laughs) And I think a lot of that pool, um, that theme came from Guardians of the Galaxy soundtracks because it got them really into like all the 70s music, like the rockers and the the old hits that we liked. Those are in a lot of those Marvel movies now. My guys are a little bit younger. They're they're seven, seven and nine. And um, yeah, they're great. They're so much fun. The seven year old. Um, he's, he, he weirdly gravitates towards like the blood brothers and locust type stuff. Nice. <laughs> he's going to be, he's going to be weird. And then my, my oldest isn't super into, I mean, it's weird cause they have a, a skewed perspective of what music is even popular because of what I listen to. Right. But, uh, the nine year old's just interested in dungeons and dungeons and dragons, which is, yeah always funny to me since it was like such like a look down upon thing when we were kids uh it was you know you had to like kind of keep it hidden and now it's like we have him signed up for like a zoom dungeons and dragons meeting every sunday oh yeah so the church that i was a part of scum of the earth church they have a D for the kids and my kids play and magic you know they're all about magic the gathering and D and i don't mind whatever like i played did you ever hear of a game called malkavian no what's that super nerdy it's like D for vampires <laughs> oh man that was the best <laughs> what is a what was the the scum of the earth church what is that that is a church that more or less grew out of the five iron bible study at the old band house so we became a collective of goths punks just all kinds of kids skater kids and even just like seminary kids and we started a bible study and in 2000, it became a legit non-denominational church. And we started in a coffee shop, then later a carpet warehouse, later an old Safeway. Um, now we bought a church. And so I was on staff there for 18 years. Reese was the assistant pastor at the time. 
and I'm now licensed as a pastor. Yeah, believe it or not, I preach and I officiate weddings and I do women's retreats and whatnot. And um, yeah, that's kind of, <laughs> I mean, again, it's a duality of life for me, but uh, it's a legit church. And for a long time, uh, Micah was on staff, Reese was on staff, I was on staff, Brad was on staff, Andy. We all went there and we raised support and pretty much were urban missionaries. And there was a lot of homeless that went there. There was a lot of good that came out of that church and it's still going on. And now it houses a roller derby shop uh, and an art gallery that I was running for a while, but it still goes on. And it's, yeah, it's this little punk rock vibe in Denver, Colorado. It's a, and it has a great name too. I mean, did you guys make, you have to have t-shirts. Oh yeah. My husband's a screen printer. He's made all those t-shirts. And then the, the skate shop is called Death and Glory, of course. <laughs> yeah. It's mostly roller derby women that go to that skate shop. Okay. That's cool. Yeah. It's legit cool. It's crazy. I met my husband at Scum of the Earth. Micah met his <laughs> wife at Scum of the Earth. I've been married 16 years. Like a lot of us met our spouses at Scum of the Earth Church. <laughs> <laughs> Was the name referencing like feeling like outcasts? Was that the idea? No, it's found in the book of First Corinthians. Um, Reese is the one who really came up with the idea. And it's when the Apostle Paul is talking about Christians and he says, the world sees us as scum of the earth, but essentially it's like, we know we aren't. And it's the concept yeah. of taking something ugly and turning it on its head. I see. My favorite band as a teenager was Nine Inch Nails. Yeah, dude, that's great. <laughs> One of the first things I noticed about you guys was when you guys made the Five Iron Frenzy logo that looks like the Nine Inch Nails logo. Yeah. Who's, whose idea was that? That was Scott Kerr. He was in art school at the time and I think just came up with that design. But yeah, pretty much... All of us like Nine Inch Nails too. Pretty Hate Machine is amazing. One of the best albums ever. Like I was totally that girl that went to Lollapalooza. Yeah, good, good times. And yeah, I think FIF, it's still something that shouldn't work, but it does because you think of Nine Inch Nails. But to me now, I don't even see that anymore. But yeah, it is definitely a ripoff. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it works. It works so well because I mean, I feel like a lot of like what you were talking about before, wanting to give the Christian kids a band that's has some substance and is good. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, all these kids are, you know, looking over at the the secular market for music and they're going, oh, I, you know, I want to listen to that, but my parents won't let me. And, you know, for those kids, it's rad that you guys would be like, well, here, slap, you know, slap one of these on your <laughs> guitar case. You know, here you go. It's just as good as the Nine Inch Nails one. It's like, all right, cool. The other thing I was, I was thinking about was, so I'm really good friends with Skylar who used to work at Asian Man Records. Mm -hmm. And at one point, you, I think you guys put out, was it a live record or a live video? We've done a lot. We did. We've done a few live records, but yeah. Okay. So there was one that came out on Asian man and he, we were just, I think I was texting him or something and he was just like, this thing sold out so fast. Yeah. We have a weird fan base. We have a fan base that for me, I think of them as like Trekkies. Right. Well, and the cool thing about it at the time was it was during a time period where ska was really not cool. That was probably the DVD of the history of our band, which, you know, comes in at a short three hours. <laughs> Seriously, it has footage of like back in the day, going on tour, getting into Rex, opening up for like Save Ferris. Um, like all these, when we went to New Zealand, when we went to Europe, when we went to South Africa, um, all this footage living in the band house and then interviews of us now. And 
then also the tragedies as far as like Micah's sister during Columbine, my brother passing away while we were in tour, people having, you know, getting dumped after being engaged, difficult things. And so all of that, three hours plus bonus footage of our last show ever live. And so that's why that sold out because that had been taking us forever to make. And it, this is a funny story and you'll love this. So we had lost all the VHS tapes that had been recorded from the old nasty, big, big, big camcorder, right? Couldn't find them. We had moved from one band house to another nicer band house, went back to the old band house. I just went back there on a whim thinking, you never know. And Idris, this guy that lived there was like, yeah, I think those are your band's VHSs. And there was stacks. And I started to go through them and half of them were labeled pornography or porn and the other half were labeled Christian shit. And I was like, oh yeah, these ones are ours. Can I take them? (laughs) So he had gone through them. (laughs) And those were the archives, a lot of them that became our movie. Oh man, that's incredible. Thank the Lord. (laughs) Yeah. With with some of that, um, some of the stuff you were just talking about with the the early touring and going to to New Zealand and, Mm -hmm. and I think you said, did you say South Africa? Yeah. Um, how much of that was, was through contacts with the church and how much of that was just through just the band as a band? It was probably more labels than church. So it would be a label that would say, maybe it was a Christian label or a few people that were trying to do a label. And they would say, for New Zealand anyway, like what the, what the deal was is the flights, we, we basically flew out there and then we played all up and down the North Island and all the money went to this label, but they housed us, they got us horseback riding and kayaking. We stayed in amazing beach houses. So basically it was like a massive vacation and we didn't get paid, but we played shows. And then South Africa was very much missional and very much intense and very much, um, I don't know. I mean, we played a lot of shows that were pretty intense and segregated and some skate parks and the vibe was a little difficult And we went out to some villages and absolute shacks and poverty. And we performed for this community that didn't really speak English. And they jumped on the stage. We had generators. They jumped on the stage and started dancing with us. Yeah, that was very much like an outreach kind of thing. And it was pretty intense, but I'm glad we did it. The outreach in in this case was to sort of help them. I don't think we did that. What we mostly did is gave a really good time and partnered with a outreach that was there full time. So there was an outreach group that lived there. And so they were on the ground doing all kinds of things there. And we just came as a special guest on behalf of them. And the best part, of course, is that the Jesus film was supposed to come and be played by the generator, but their truck broke down or they got lost. And so it was just a five iron show. (laughs) (laughs) But hey, and there was one song that we played that kind of had a Calypso beat and they liked it so much we played it twice. <laughs> now that's a good show. Definitely. Um, you also brought up um, Van, Van. I always enjoy, well not enjoy, but I'm always kind of fascinated to hear about like Van Troubles on tour. Oh gosh, you could write a book. Hey Aaron, that's your next book idea. <laughs> right? So you, you mentioned it for just a second. I just wanted to hear what sort of, what I heard. Oh, there's so many. The The first van we had, well, there's several, but one of the vans we had, you know, the heater didn't work in the front. No, the heater didn't work in the back, but it did work in the front. So the guys in the front would not wear shirts because the heater was full blast. And then people from the back would hand their sweatshirts up to the front to get them warm by the heater and then throw them back. 
And then we were tasting this sweet in our mouth and we started noticing there was like a green haze and we were eating antifreeze. Oh. <laughs> like in the air. Yeah. And did you know what we ended up getting? What'd you do? We bought a school bus. So because Warp Tour, we didn't have, this is before Bandwagon, and we didn't have this awesome, you know, label with the tour bus for us. So we bought a huge school bus and we gutted it and put eight captain's chairs, eight bunks. It had a bathroom because that was the only way to register it as an RV. And we toured in that for several years. Like so many stories about that school bus from parking in front of a hotel and like drunk prom kids getting on thinking that their school had sent it (laughs) or um, hitting an owl in the middle of the night or being pulled over, you know, near the border in Mexico and being shoved out into the street by cops looking for drugs. And Hey, we're a Christian man. There's no drugs. And they're just so (laughs) insistent that if they keep looking, they're going to find some. Did it just look like a regular bus on the outside, like regular school bus? Just the only difference is on top, it had a massively loud, nasty generator, but that made the AC go. So that was, and then we had like a huge TV in the front, massive TV. So the guys could play Goldeneye. Oh yeah. Did you guys ever get into playing uh, Tony Hawk on that thing? Just Goldeneye. And then um, watching like uh, movies, some movies, but again, we didn't watch rated R movies. (laughs) (laughs) So what, what movies were you guys watching then? I don't remember. I, I don't. You don't? No. Oh, okay. I'll tell you another funny story. So yeah. Okay. I know. Our last tour ever, we did get a tour bus, a real legit tour bus, like the kind with a driver. And our driver was this uh, beefy African-American guy, probably in his sixties. And the first night on the bus, he sits us all down and there's a bunch of wives, you know, are coming at this point. Cause a lot of the guys are married. And he says, I have a couple rules. No sex on the bus, no guns on the bus. <laughs> and we're all looking at each other like, what? Come to find out, he used to be a tour bus for tour bus driver for a rap group. So these are his expectations, right? Of us. Then when we would pull up to places and fans would start running towards the bus, he'd scream, step away from the bus. And it's like, okay, these are ska fans. They're not scary. Then we're putting on pajama pants right after the show, making popcorn. Everyone's snuggled up with their significant other watching. Uh, you remember the movie? I think it's called The Family Man with Nicolas Cage. Yeah, okay. And kind of getting teary-eyed. Mm-hmm. And he comes in and he's like looking at us. And then he found out we were a Christian band. And he's like, it all makes sense. <laughs> he was so confused. <laughs> then we found out he was a Christian. And he had been all night long when during these drives like talking to his wife while he's driving. We're like, bring her. So he brought her and she sat right behind him the rest of the tour. Oh, so nice. Yeah. Pretty cool. We'll be right back after this. Hey everybody. It's Barry from the what podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA plus and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. And just to, just to circle back, what happened to the school bus? Well, we sold it to Roper, which was the band Reese Roper made after Five Iron broke up. 
Consequently, my husband played in that band, and so did my brother-in-law, and no sooner had we sold it to Roper, which I kind of was connected because I, you know, by marriage and helped clean it with my husband, that it didn't ever drive again. <laughs> <laughs> what what went out on it was, I want to guess, I'm going to guess transmission. Yeah, probably that. Yeah. yeah. It was, I mean, it was <laughs> on its last leg. We had taken it, we've gone to every single state with that. And do you, do you know how many miles it had on it? No, I don't, but it, I mean, it was beat up by that time. And we used to pull a horse trailer with all of our gear. That's pretty ghetto. <laughs> wow. A horse trailer. They're cheaper than nicer trailers. Well, I know, but aren't they, they have like a lot of like open holes, right? So that the animals can breathe. I just remember it was less expensive and my band is really uh, weird. Ska band, right? Thrifty. You guys are thrifty Christians. Yeah. Part of that whole ethos. Yeah. Hey, Aaron, I have a question for you. Did any Christian bands make it into your book? No. Um, I did actually seriously consider doing a chapter on Christian ska or you guys specifically, but it just kind of didn't make it. Yeah, there's way too much stuff. There's so much. There's a lot going on in ska, just as like, I mean, I don't know if you guys watched the extra footage on the Pick It Up movie. Did you watch any of that stuff? The the only thing I've seen is is Brent's band playing. Oh, that's actually on the the um the last blockbuster. Well, I'll get you guys copies if you want DVDs, and that way you can watch all the extra stuff. It's fun. Yeah, I'd love it. You don't have like the four four hour version, right? No, the four hour one. Well, okay, that one got edited down, so it's not like that. But it's extra footage in the other stuff. Got it. Okay, yeah. You have to buy, and this is kind of like a nice plug on here too for anybody listening. Um, if you go to scottmovie.com right now, a lot of the stuff is on sale, but there still are. You can get DVD or Blu-ray of the Pick It Up movie, and that has all that extra, a lot of extra stuff on there. I want to ask about your Kickstarter in, in 2011. What's that? <laughs> <laughs> I know. What is that? That was the moment where... I don't think I uh, quite understood how intense your fans were in the, <laughs> back in the day, but that's when I understood when I found out about what was happening with your Kickstarter, when you guys, and that was cause you guys had been broken up for nine years and that was like, your we're getting back together album. Right. Mm -hmm. And the cool thing about that was we had talked about getting back together. So we secretly flew to New York and recorded a song that was really good turned out amazing. And I couldn't even tell my dad because he can't keep a secret. So we all did this. So not only did we say we're going to make an album, but we released a new song. And I think that having the new song and having it be called Hope Still Flies and having it be good and a new sound, but still kind of familiar. I think that, I mean, I'd like to think that our fans are awesome too, but having that in the can really propelled the project because you're saying this is legit. It's going to happen. We're not just going to fizzle out because we don't like each other anymore. It's like, we're committed. Here's a piece of what we can do. Adam and I have a friend named Nate Allen. Oh, I know Nate Allen. You know Nate of Allen? Course. Okay. <laughs> so he played with our band, Narboots, and then we ended up backing him on uh, this album that uh, that he did, or that Destroy Nate Allen did. Our, was it called Our Powers Combined? Our, yeah, I think it's called By Our Powers Combined or With Our Powers Combined. Yeah, so we, we ended up uh, recording the, you know, the backing instruments of that for him, and he came to California and recorded it, or him and his wife. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a few conversations with him cause he's Christian, but I think he is exactly what you're describing. Like kind of feels like an outcast, you know, kind of feels at odds with the church. And I had a few conversations with him and, and I, he talked to me about how much he loved five iron frenzy 
And he definitely connected it to that, what you're saying. It's like the church is a certain way. And, you know, he has, you know, these different kinds of thoughts, but he's still a believer, you know, Mm -hmm. and that you guys definitely represented that to him and to other people like him. So I do a lot of podcasts and the majority of ones that I do are with, um, honestly, it's five iron fans, but they're like pastors now, (laughs) you know, like our fan base. (laughs) I don't want to like pigeonhole them, but it's usually like, okay, let's be honest, 35 to 45 white guy, maybe has a dad bod, maybe still keeps up a nice body. (laughs) He has a couple of kids, a really nice wife. Um, not really, you know, maybe he's kind of conservative, but maybe he's also a little progressive. I don't know. But that's the guy that's usually doing the podcast that I do mm-hmm. and, you know, goes to church and is pretty involved. And so the spiritual things I'm really used to talking about. And then there's the other interviews that I do that usually like the guy that's like, well, I don't really like church, but, you know, I like your band. And we don't even talk about the stuff we're talking about here. But if I'm being very honest, I think there's a big difference between the quote unquote church and the white Christian church. And I'm not a racist. <laughs> I have to put that out there, right? Yeah. My husband's white. But, but I think the issue here is that if you say the church, you're forgetting that there's a massive African-American church. There's a massive, massive Asian church. There's a massive Hispanic church. And not all those churches have been believing the same things, doing the same things, and pushing the same agenda. They haven't. They haven't, a lot of them. And so when you look at what we're disappointed in, that can be a very small culture, but a very loud culture. And of course, division sells. Division sells so much. And so the media and everybody and even ourselves are going to focus and hone in on the agitators, right? And so it's sad because those are the loudest people, but those aren't the majority of Christianity. It's the, and you'll see once in a while, like one article will come out like, this wonderful church let homeless people sleep inside. And it's like, I will tell you right now, I know without a doubt, there's about 20 churches in Denver that do that, but they don't advertise it. Or these churches are building tiny homes. There's tons of them doing that. Or these churches are doing this good thing. It's like you highlight one out of, you know, thousands. And I think that that's the sadness that has happened is we focus, hyper-focus too much on the negative. But underneath all of it, it's going to be okay. There are still people that recognize that This is not the ultimate message. And so the frustrating part for me, and I'll just get on my soapbox and say it, is that a lot of people are ditching Christianity now because, oh, now it's too much. Now it's in my world. Now, oh my goodness, it's offensive to me. The last president was offensive to me. And what my church is is offensive to me. It's like, did you not realize that under the guise of Christianity, the manifest destiny happened, that land was taken, that slavery happened? How has it been for all of these cultures to accept this Jesus with that background? And now it's too much for you? Now it's too much for you? It really kind of sometimes pisses me off because I'm like, if we haven't let, if the, if the minorities haven't let go of Jesus under what's happened under them, how do you get the right to be offended now and say, now your eyes are opened and you can't be called a Christian because those are Christians. That And that to me is, the difference between listening to people and listening to what God is saying to you in your heart. And so that's just something I, I'm recognizing. And I'm again, like I'm super passionate about it and not everybody's going to agree, but I don't mind saying it. No, I think that's, I think that's spot on. That's great. I, I definitely appreciate people, even though I, I, I'm an atheist, I appreciate hearing from people who are not part of that mainstream hyper, hyper Christian, I'm sorry, hyper conservative Christian point of view that's kind of getting broadcasted. And I think, and I do agree, there's a lot of people that are 
um, have different values, but still believe it, are still believers. You know, I have a friend in Santa Cruz who's a minister and he's mm. super progressive and always taking a stand for all these, all these progressive issues and, and fighting with conservative Christians all the time and stuff. So I know they're out there and it'd just be nice to hear from them more, you know, in a, you know, in the, in the mainstream discussion. Yeah. But I think, I think what Leonor is saying though, that's really important is, is you don't get to just turn your back on, on your faith because all of a sudden the things that are coming up against it politically or the other people who share that same faith as you, that you think that they, uh, like the way, the way that you put it is, is great. Like, it's the th- it's throwing the baby out with the bathwater, and it's exactly it's the Christianity has become a cult of do's and do nots, and it's the same thing that happened with the Pharisees back in the day. There's no different, right? And all of us right. are guilty of it to some degree, but it's just recognizing when you start to get close, and your head is going to get chopped off because you're Willie in you're in Willy Wonka's factory, and you are Charlie, and you're having a great time drinking all this fuzzy lifting gift, <laughs> gassy stuff, and you're having the best time of your life. Your head's going to get chopped off because you're becoming a Pharisee. <laughs> I mean, I you brought up that you've been doing a lot of podcasts, and I've I've listened to a couple of the different podcasts that you've done. I think it's really interesting that you've kind of become the the de facto mouthpiece for the band. <laughs> you know why? It's probably because other people have more legit jobs. <laughs> some of them are more introverted, and some of them are more you know busy. I'm like, bring it on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's I I find it really refreshing like that it's you know most people only ever want to talk to like the lead singer of a band in some ways i i struggle because i know reese's lyrics are severely um personal to him and powerful and i don't ever want to take credit but at the same time i recognize that you know how they always say what is that saying um that better than the sum of its parts. What is that saying? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. individually I'm okay as a sax player, but being in five iron, I have so much more of a capital V voice. Right. And when we talk back to that original mission statement, the, the attractive thing for a saxophone player to be in a band for me was the capital V voice. It was as, as me, how much can I do and how much can I do if I put my energy and my efforts towards this? And this has been a beautiful place to have ministry, conversation, relationships, travel. Yeah. Everything that I've experienced came from this stupid little saxophone that I used to be embarrassed to play. And it's beyond me. It shouldn't even be this cool. But I mean, I'm talking to people that are in bands that, that I've liked for a long time and an author and just super cool. Like I told my husband I was doing this and he's, you know, kudos to me. I think one of the other things that I've liked that I've heard you speak of on before is, you know, thinking of, of the other members of the band as, as your brothers or your siblings. And, and, uh, I mean, the most attractive part for me about being in a band also, um, has always been the almost gang mentality to it, where it's like, you're, you're part of this thing that's bigger than you and you're contributing to it and you, you're creating this like special bond with these people that I don't think there's anything else like being in a band especially the type of band that we're in where it's not just, it's not like a three piece or a four piece. Yeah. Like it's, it, you know, having, having a horn section adds more people and it, and it creates like a weirder dynamic than just a regular four piece band. I really do think of being in a band similar to being married because when it gets hard, there's a teeny tiny part of me that says you might want to quit because it's hard and uncomfortable mm. or you have to apologize or you have to swallow your pride or you have to speak up or you have to change or you have to not do that solo because you're not as good as the other guy or whatever. Um, <laughs> but 
there's only a tiny part of me that wants to quit. And then the whole other reality is like, no way. There's no way. It's just going to be awkward for a bit and it'll get better. The big picture is so much more beautiful than being right. You know, being loved and being cooperative and growing is better than being right every single time. And so even if you want someone else to quit, it's like my pride is like, well, I'm not going to quit. And then I'm like, well, I'm not going to quit. So we're going to have to make up someday. And I think we've all been through that time with a spouse or a partner where it's like, I know we're going to make up. I don't know how. I don't see the light at the end of the tunnel, but we're going to because this doesn't work by ourselves. And so that's kind of when things get really hard. I just remember like, we've been doing this since 1995. And if you don't know me by now, I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm not always the easiest, but I mean, I'm outspoken a lot of the times. Um, But I hope that people can recognize my heart. And I know I can recognize theirs, even if I may not like what they do or what they say. At the end of the day, look at their their heart and their bigger track record, right? I want to ask a little bit before we wrap, I wanted to ask a little bit about so your your new album, I think your new album is really good. And it also has a lot of a lot of like fresh energy, I guess. I'm not sure the word I'm looking for. It just has a an immediacy to it, hmm. an excitement to it. I'm curious about what, you know, what led to it or what kind of inspired it. Or I know you can't speak specifically to Reese's lyrics, but it did seem like it was, it was, there was a, a, an inspiration or motivation behind the album as a whole. Oh yeah. I mean, if anything, we were talking about, we need to get this out before, before we get a new president because it's timely, but in a way it's not timely because kind of, as you've talked about, there is a, or I talked about, there's a slow burn of scariness happening. (laughs) That's not going to go away right away, but we know the times that we're in. And I think Reese may or may not, I'm kind of speaking for him, have a different perspective because he lives in Virginia. So the rest of us living in, in fact, I know he does. I mean, us living in Denver and him having moved to Virginia gives him a different perspective of the, the social climate. And we've been working on these songs for about seven years, honestly. Like a lot of them, Scott just writes songs. And then out of those, you pick some and you don't pick some and you pick some and you don't pick some and they vamp and they change and they warp and they twist and they get shelved and then they come back and are inspiring again. And the interesting thing is we never really have talks. It's just very organic, you know? So there's never really a big overarching plan. It's just whatever fits. And then the other piece of this album is, you said it's fresh and it is, but the other piece that I'm seeing is a nostalgic piece. And that's those songs that are more like Weezer ripoffs, <laughs> kind of more like <laughs> the, we were kind of hearkening to back in the day in the school bus, listening to workers are going home or like the rentals or, you know, just listening to that easy music that we used to listen to and happy times and bopping your head and the nostalgia and the fun and the family piece. And there's some of those songs interspersed with some of the anger and the angst and the, you know, the light yourself on fire music, because life gets so heavy that you kind of also just want to go back and say, remember when, you know, we were filled with energy back then. And that was a good thing, but you know, we're still filled with energy now. And so I, we, again, we've never talked about, this is like, I'm just verbally processing it as I go. But I think that's one of the cool pieces about being in a band since 95 is you can write music that is new, but you can always write music that goes back. Definitely. Do you have the same horn? Are you still playing the same horn or have you gotten different horns? <laughs> I'm playing a different <laughs> horn because when Five Iron first start, I could only afford a pawn shop alto. And then the band pretty much begged me to get a, a tenor, which I'm tiny. I'm like five, four. So tenor, you know, it's kind of killing me, but 
when the band did get back together uh, in, I think, 2011, and we did that huge Kickstarter, we each got some money for equipment. And I basically put it out there on the internet and said, what are people playing now? You know, I've taken nine years off, basically. I've played some saxophone, but, you know, if I have the money, you can get something good. And everyone said, Cannonball, Cannonball is amazing. So I called Cannonball, looked on their website, and I'm like, Cannonball, looks like you only have a few women sponsorships. Let me tell you about me. And, <laughs> and they, they sponsored me. So I have this massive, oh, it's like black. It's a nickel plated black. It's called a Raven and it's huge and it's the big bell series. So it's really loud. So I have an amazing horn now, but yeah, it is very heavy. I, I just was interested to hear that because I just know that most of the horn players that I know, they're, they're still playing the same horn <laughs> that they played in, in like high school band. Yeah. And, and like, I know that like Steve Borth who played in Link 80, like he bought, he bought a saxophone off Mike Park. Wow. And then just could never, never afford to get it fixed when we were on tour. So it was constantly just like, putting it back together with like rubber bands and mm -hmm. all the horns I've had back in the day were pawn shop things and they've done me well, but when you get that money, Oh no, <laughs> you're getting custom in-ears that are molded. You know, I got orthotics for my shoes. <laughs> uh, all that stuff makes a huge difference. Yeah. When you're my age. <laughs> <laughs> so the Kickstarter, <laughs> the Kickstarter, you guys got uh, just over 200,000. What you what were you guys raising? What were you guys aiming for? The first time was supposed to be thirty thousand dollars in six months, and we raised our goal in an hour. And then it was, but you did reach two hundred. I got like two hundred and seven thousand. Yeah, it was in the New York Times. What did you end up doing? Did you like so you had planned an album for thirty thousand? So how did that work out then? Doing an album for two hundred thousand? Yeah, so we did an album, we did an EP, and then the second piece that we had never said we would do is we started playing live. We didn't have the plan to play live, but now it was, now we can fly and be together and practice, make merchandise. We can get amps, we can get guitars, we can get this inner system. You know, basically it made us a legit touring band after that. And we did. We, for at least two or three years consecutively, every month we flew out on a Thursday, played a show Friday and Saturday, and then flew home on a Sunday. And then once in a while, we take a few months off. Then we went on like 20 days with Real Big Fish rented a bandwagon. I mean, all these things that we did most of the time, just breaking even because eight people flying, flying all the gear, shipping all the merch. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, I got to get my own hotel room most of the time. <laughs> Not all the time, but most of the time I'm, I'm you know, I'm hoping <laughs> and I have to get my hair dyed. I had to get stuff done. <laughs> so that all came from the, the Kickstarter. Yeah. And then, you know, Honestly, you have to pay a fee. Like, I think we paid 60000 to Uncle Sam. And then I don't know what the fee was that we had to pay for Kickstarter gets a cut. And then all the things you buy, you know, the T-shirts, the posters, the stuff costs to make, the manufacturing costs. And then we really screwed up the first time and we forgot to add a different postage for international. So we lost a ton of money because we charged the same amount for uh, the United States. And we had tons of like, Australia and England and all this, these people ordering vinyl and all this stuff that we had to ship and pay more, which not a big deal because we had the money, but things went to all that. Just one last thing. So, so you brought up the band having a, a mission statement. Does the band still have a mission statement and has it shifted? Yeah, I think we do have a mission statement. And the only way we kind of talked about it was when we got in a circle, the first time we all saw each other, when we were deciding whether or not we wanted to get back together. 
And again, I'm kind of verbally processing this, but what we decided in the end, not on paper, but just through conversation was, is it okay if these songs are about hope? And everyone agreed with that. Everyone said yes. And everyone trusted Reese and said, we want these songs to be edifying to society and we trust you and they can be about, they should be from a place of hope. And I think if, if we were to really unpack the message, that's where we stand. And you think that's been consistent for the last 10 years then? Yeah, that and the occasional band fight. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to In Defense of Scum. If you haven't already, subscribe to my newsletter at aaronharns.substack.com. You will get episodes of the In Defense of Scum podcast and other content sent directly to your inbox. If you would like to pre-order my book, In Defense of Scum, go to clashbooks.com. It releases on May 4th, 2021. On that note, we leave you by saying, Scum now more than ever. Thank you. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA, and they include camping. Russ. How'd people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Hey, everybody. It's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ... How do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.